Welcome back, students, to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019, Lecture 11. Gerion, Fraud, and the Structure of Circle 8. We'll be focusing on Canto 17 and 18 today. But like yesterday and like usual, let's briefly review what we saw yesterday. And so we were amongst the violent yesterday. And so we had already seen Subcircle 1 and Subcircle 2. Recall that Subcircle 1 is the violent against others. There are three sorts of sinners that are violent against others. They are highway robbers, tyrants, and murderers. We saw two specific tyrants in the River of Boiling Blood in Circle 7, Subcircle 1, called Phlegathon. Those tyrants were Alexander the Great, student to Aristotle, and Dionysus of Syracuse, student of Plato, who had once... Um, arrested him, essentially, and kept him under house arrest at his own home. Recall also that there are two creatures in subcircle one, sorts of creatures, hybrid creatures, creatures that are themselves violences against nature. There are the centaurs, who shoot those sinners who emerge from the boiling blood higher than they ought to, and there is the minotaur running about bellowing itself. Circle, subcircle two, we met Pierre de la Vigna, Pierre of the Vine. He committed suicide. There are two sorts of sinners here who are violent against themselves. Those violent against their physical selves, suicides. Those violent against their property, squanderers. The suicide's punishment is to be immobilized and speechless within trees unless they are harmed in some way. Often by our third hybrid creature, a harpy, or in the case of Pierre de la Vigna, by Virgil and Dante. The punishment for the suicides comes from Virgil's Aeneid and Polydorus. The punishment for the squanderers being torn apart by hounds comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's based on a character named Acteon. Good. The third subcircle. Remember, the third subcircle is itself split into three. Those violent against God. Those are blasphemers. Capanius was one of those. Those violent against nature. Those are sodomites. Brunetto Latini, Tagayo Aldebrandi, and Jacopo Rusticucci were the sodomites that we met. And then those who were violent against art, we did not meet a specific one of those, but those were the usurers. Good, 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 good. And recall that the terrain is very different from the dark forest of negation of the suicides and is a bright red, uh, hot plain desert on which uh, fire is raining down at all times. And if you stop moving for even a moment, 100 years must you spend supine, prostrate, on the ground, being burned top and bottom, front and back. On to Gerion. I found my guide, 1779, who had already climbed upon the back of that brute animal. And he told me, be strong and daring now. This is how Virgil will go from circle 7 to 8. I want you to notice the gulf, the difference in depth between them. It's almost like the severity of sins gets more and more severe as you go down, and they get more and more different from each other. And he told me, be strong and daring now, for our descent is by this kind of stairs. You mount in front, I want to be between so that the tail can't do you any harm. So recall that Jaron has the face of a, a just man, the paws of a lion, has garish swirls on his back, and then has the tail of a scorpion. The reason why Virgil wants to be between the tail of Gerion and Dante, if we accept what Dante explicitly says at the beginning of 17, that Gerion is a symbol of fraud, is that the purpose of the teacher is to represent fraud to you, 
without having you experience being defrauded yourself in the same way that Virgil also acted like an intermediary keeping Vir uh, Dante's eyes from seeing Medusa. Apparently part of what a teacher or an educator does for a young person is they represent situations so that when uh, difficult situations so that when young people actually experience those, like something is stolen from them or someone betrays them, uh, then they are inoculated against them. Or to some extent they have some parameters to put around their emotions in those situations. The idea is that if you know people have been stolen from at some point, and you are stolen from, you will handle the situation better if you understand it before it happens to you. It is based on the same uh, idea as physically inoculating yourself. If you have ever received a, a shot for, uh, say, a, the flu, what, how that works is a little bit of flu is shot inside of you so that your immune system becomes stronger and adapts to that flu strain so that you do not catch the full-on flu, which is also why there is some risk in getting inoculated because, of course, you can catch the what? You can catch the flu, right, exactly so. And I suppose that's also true of literature. I suppose you could also be scarred by the fact that you see represented in front of you the idea that somebody's being defrauded. But I would say that if literature is powerful enough to scar you, then certainly reality will do much worse. And so that's something well worth keeping in mind. And so, as one who feels the Corton fever near and shivers, with his nails already blue, the sight of shade, shade enough to make him shudder, so I became when I heard these words. He's scared. He doesn't want to get on the back of this crazy thing. It's like getting on a roller coaster, but much worse. So I became when I heard these words, but when, then, sorry, I felt the threat of shame, which makes a servant in his kind Lord's present brave. I love that. I love that. It's sort of like when it's dark and you're alone, you're scared of the dark. But when it's dark and your friend is with you, then you're, you're brave. Oh, no, I'm not scared of the dark. Whatever. Same idea here. I settled down on those enormous shoulders, I wished to say, and yet my voice did not come as I thought, see that you hold me tight. He wants his teacher to hold him tight because he's really scared, he's really nervous. And we sort of smile at that, but I've uh, coached many people in speech and debate competitions, and I can tell you right before the competition, who do you think the debater wants to be near? Their coach, right. They're nervous, of course. Right before you perform, you get nervous. You show yourself for who you really are. And so, uh, it's important to have somebody there as support. But he, who at other times and other dangers sustained me, Virgil, just as soon as I had mounted, clasped me within his arms and propped me up and said, Now, Jerrion, move on. Take care. Keep your circles wide. You're landing slow. Remember the new weight you're carrying. Just like a boat, and we're going to see a series of nautical metaphors throughout the remainder of the Divine Comedy, uh, and you should be thinking of Odysseus and his nautical journey whenever we see this. Starting from its moorings, moves backwards, backwards, so that the beast took off, and when he felt himself completely clear, he turned his tail to where his chest had been. That's highly symbolic, him showing himself for what he truly is. And having stretched it, moved like an eel. And with his paws, he gathered in the air. I do not think that there was greater fear in Thothon when he let his reins go free, I'll tell you his story soon, for which the sky, as one still sees, was scorched, nor in poor Icarus, I'll tell his story too, when he could feel his sides unwinged because the wax was melting, his father shouting to him, that way's wrong, also deeply symbolic. They are going down, they are going the wrong way. 
we actually still speak in the same way. You've gone astray. You're off track. You seem lost. You are going downhill fast. Uh, things are going to snowball. Uh, that was a tumultuous fall. How we describe people going wrong is we say you've gone off the right direction or, or you veered or we say you're going downhill. We say you're moving downwards. And so, then was in me on all sides I saw that I was in the air and everything had faded from my sight except the beast slowly, slowly swimming. He moves on, he wheels and he descends but I feel only the wind upon my face and the wind rising. It's like a roller coaster. And he compares it again to a nautical journey, like he is sailing, even though he is clearly flying. And, well, we'll say much more about that, especially in Canto 26 of the Paradiso. So, the flight of Jerion. Let's talk about Jerion. Jerion is himself a tripartite form. You need to be writing this. He has the head of a just man. He has the paws of a lion. He has the body of a wyvern. That means a dragon, old English term. And he has the tail of a scorpion. And so, really, he's almost like quadpartite. But tripartite works a little bit better. Well, what is the allegory behind this? What is this supposed to mean, this literary representation? Well, this is a clear symbol for though humans might seem good and trustworthy, if you just look at the face of them, if you just look at appearances, you can see that Bernetto Latini's speech from yesterday has prepared the way for this, as well as our reading of Homer's Odyssey, knowing that you cannot trust appearances because they are often simplistic representations of something far more complex, like your idea of, say, a computer, or your idea of, say, a car, or your idea of, say, your immune system, or your idea, say, of a complex political system, like a republican democracy like we have, or of a complex economic system like capitalism. In fact, you can tell how simplistic most people's representations of reality are when they come up with single-cause solutions to problems. If we just say, uh, 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 if, if we just made more food, people would stop starving. Or, or I, what, what's a common one that people say these days? Oh, I can't even think of one. I'll think of one for next time on the spot. It's not really the focus of this lecture. But the amount of simplistic things that we say based on our simplistic representations of things, focusing on the appearances of things, well, uh, probably we say more things based on the appearances of things than the substance of things because it's difficult to understand the substance of things because you have to see the substance of things, not with your eyes, but with your minds. In any case, Gerion represents the poison within all humans. Their capacity, because of their intellect and their free will, to make choices that will harm those around them and themselves, as we saw in uh, Circle 7, Subcircle 2. So like a snake hidden but dangerous. So are the motives of the fraudulent. Snake in the grass, you cannot see, but it can harm you. Someone's ill intention towards you, you cannot see, but it can certainly harm you. And so these are the creatures, these are the people down in circle eight who are themselves predators on other people. Now that there are no snakes, because we do not live in forests full of snakes at this point that can consume us and our young, where does our na biggest natural threat come from? It's not fire anymore. It's not snake. It is what? Other people. Right. It is other people. As very much proved by the Vikings uh, in the Middle Ages and their relations to the Brits 
And also, of course, with the Trojans and the Achaeans. And as you know from that time, people would be pirate to each other. They would attack each other. They would steal from each other. They would take their belongings. They would take the women and children from people. They would enslave them. The biggest natural threat to a human is a human. In fact, you know this because of the way in your movies that you like to watch, we have to represent, uh, we have to create human-like creatures that are threats to humans, which we usually call aliens, but they, these are the two qualities of those aliens that they always have. They are smarter than we are, and they usually do not like us. Well, that would be the exact same situation as if we met a civilization that was smarter and more powerful than we were, and we had some resource that they desired. And so we constantly represent that over and over again to ourselves to remember that we live in a dangerous place full of dangerous creatures that have minds, which is the most dangerous weapon ever to have existed and has produced the most dangerous physical weapons ever to have existed, chemical and nuclear uh, weapons. And so, well, we're going down to where those people are. Virgil places himself between the pilgrim and Geron's tail. As I was saying, this is an allegory. Like with Medusa, the teacher shields the students by giving literature or an example of something to inoculate the mind of that student against the reality of that. And so if I'm telling you stories about the fact that people have betrayed other people, then probably you can deduce what fact. That it has been a common trope throughout the history of both literature and reality that people have betrayed people. In fact, one of the source texts for the Divine Comedy the New Testament, at least three of the synoptic Gospels, involve the God-man Jesus himself being betrayed, not only by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver, but even by his own friend, the Apostle Peter. So, betrayal, fraud, is uh, fundamental to humanity. And perhaps that's why the deeper we go, the closer we get to it. In any case, we then have the mention of Phaethon and Icarus. These are two young men from Greek mythology who both died by falling out of the sky. Phaethon was an illegitimate son of Apollo. Being an illegitimate son of Apollo is not an easy thing to do because he told his friends he was, and then his friends said, actually, your mom is just uh, a liar and probably not a god is your father, but probably just some random guy. Pretty rude thing for his friends to say. So he sought out Apollo, found Apollo, and Apollo said, no, you're my son. I'll grant you any request you ask of me. So Phaethon, being young, being foolish, said, let me drive your chariot across the stars. Move the sun across the heavens today. And that was the worst thing he could have asked for, because not even Zeus can drive the, the chariot of Apollo. So can some mortal kid do it? Absolutely not. It's way too much responsibility. He loses control of the chariot, almost gets hit by the, uh, the snake Draco, supposedly burns the sands of Ethiopia, and then Zeus, who is being implored by Gaia, who is the goddess of Earth, uh, who's being burned to a crisp, he takes his thunderbolt, throws it at Phaethon, he falls into the waters, and supposedly his body smokes to this day. To this day. Has never stopped since he has been fulminated. Icarus, uh, just as sad, he was the son of Daedalus, the man who first created the labyrinth for the Minotaur. Well, after creating the labyrinth, he knew he needed to get out of there because King Minos might kill him. 
because he doesn't need him anymore. Uh, also possibly because he's the one who created the effigy into which uh, Minos' wife went in order to couple with the bull to create the Minotaur itself. So Daedalus uh, <clears throat> shares some responsibility in that event. In any case, he decided to create feathered wings and attach them to his back with wax. He did that for himself and his son, and they flew off. It actually worked. <clears throat> Nowadays, we just like make a drone and then have it carry us. Have any of y'all seen those YouTube videos where like two drones in a hammock and people are doing things that are probably going to get them killed? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe don't watch those. Bad ideas. In any case, Icarus keeps flying closer and closer to the sun. There's wax on his back. What starts to happen to the wax? Starts to melt, of course. His father warns him. Says, don't fly too close to the sun. He's young. Does he listen to the adult with the good advice? No. No, of course not, because he's totally unique, and none of the advice that's true for everybody is true for him, unfortunately. He flies too close to the sun. What happens? The wax melts. The wings fall off. He falls into the ocean. He dies. And actually, very sadly, in the Aeneid, it says that Daedalus helped to create the mural on the wall of the Temple of Juno. And you can see on that mural where he hesitated and had to pause when he was representing the death of his son. I think that's such a beautiful detail. Because that's exactly what you would do. Even if you were just writing it somewhere, you would hesitate for a moment and feel the grief of that situation with it being called to your mind again. And in any case, these are the two people mentioned here. People who made big mistakes because of these mistakes, died because of it. It's almost like Dante is comparing himself to these individuals right now as he goes down, as he spirals downward. Do we still talk in that way? Do we say you're spiraling downward when somebody seems to be moving in the wrong direction in their life? Of course we do. Of course we do. All right, very good. We only have two more slides today. We then answer a place called the Malabolgia. Malus, evil, bolgia, pockets. These are the evil pockets or the evil ditches. There is a place in hell called Malabolgia. You can see here that in Canto 18, we really have a new beginning to the poem. In Canto 18, very interesting, right after, directly after the halfway point in the Inferno, which is 34 cantos. So Canto 18 is the beginning of the second half of the story. You might say that we got a climax now we're beginning the descent down. And even physically within the tail, are we descending downward right now? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And we have 16 more cantos to go. This is the beginning of the end. Again, there is a place in hell called Malabolgia, made all of stone the color of crude iron, as is the wall that makes its way around it. Right in the middle of this evil field is an abyss, a broad and yawning pit. That's circle nine which is even deeper, whose structure I shall tell in its due place. The belt, then, that extends between the pit and that hard, steep wall's base is circular. Its bottom has been split into ten valleys. All right, you've seen this slide before, but we need to reiterate it. The second half of this poem will focus on two circles of this poem. Those two circles are themselves split into ten subcircles for circle eight. They are called bulges or ditches or pockets, they are the mala bulges. And circle nine will itself be split into four circles as well. That's where we'll find the frozen river of Cocytus. That's where we'll find Satan himself. In fact, between eight and nine, we will meet some giants who will take us uh, 
from 8 down to 9. In any case, what are the 10 subcircles, the 10 evil pockets of 80? Who are the people who are simple frauds? They are panderers and seducers. Panderers are pimps. In fact, the name Pander comes from the name Pandaros. Pandaros the Archer from the Iliad last year. But based on a medieval story about him called Troilus and Cressida, um, where he sort of sets up a relationship between Troilus and Cressida. And then uh, after the Achaeans defeat the Trojans, he sets up a relationship between Cressida and Diomedes, which, unfortunate, Troilus has to see, uh, sadly enough. In any case, we then see flatterers, they'll be in feces, Simoniacs, named for Simon Magus, uh, sorcerers, not in that, uh, sorcerers are future seers, barators, lawyers and corrupt politicians, hypocrites, hypocrites are hypocrites, they're people that say one thing, do another, thieves, uh, we'll meet the most arrogant person in hell there, Bonnie Fuji, deceivers, uh, that, those are the false counselors, those are, um, the, the false counselors are where we will meet Ulysses and Diomedes. Sowers of Discord will meet uh, Ali and Muhammad there, uh, as well as Bertrand de Born. And then the falsifiers or the counterfeiters will meet Master Adam there and Sinon from the Aeneid Book 2 last year, the Achaean spy who convinced the Trojans to take the Trojan horse into Troy. Obviously, as the Trojans were the ancestors of the Romans, and the Romans were the ancestors of the Italians, and Dante is an Italian, he is pro-Trojan, and thus he is anti-Sinon. In any case, as I have said before, Cocytus, the frozen river, is in Circle 9, and we will see a very similar punishment there to what we saw with the boiling river, Phlegathon. Sinners will be submerged, frozen in ice, as deeply as their hearts were cold, and the coldness of their action was. And in fact, that is how we still speak, right? When you do something exceptionally mean to someone you're supposed to be warm toward or show warmth or affection towards, what do we say about that sort of action? You just, you send a text message to your girlfriend of four years. It's over. I met a new girl. We would say that that's pretty what? We'd say that's cold. That's cold-hearted. Exactly. We'd say, we'd maybe even breathe in. We'd be like, that's cold. Yes. Yes. Probably there are even still songs that feature that sort of idea of being cold. I don't know nowadays. Are there some pop songs that talk about, like, you're so cold, or something like that? I'm sure if I looked, I could find plenty. In any case, you can let me know later. The last thing I need to say is that the four sub-circles of Circle 9, which we are not going to focus on for, well, about 10 or 11 cantos, are Kyena, Antonora, Ptolemaea, and Judeca. They are all representative of people who were traitors to specific people they had specific relationships to. Cana, family, Antonora, um, political uh, allies, Ptolemaea, guests, and Judeca, rightful lords. Do I have anything else? Nope, that's all I wanted for this. Now we will review.